Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon, chapter 6, the very last verse, verse 13. And we're just going to read this text and then we'll walk our way through it in um, what I hope is useful and very applicational way. Just as a reminder, Song of Solomon is certainly God's view of human marriage, it is His theology of marriage. But this is useful for every single Christian. 2 Timothy 3.16 is very clear that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so all Scripture is useful for all believers to know the will of God, to know the mind of God. So lest anybody think that this is just a, a marriage series, it's not. It's a series through the Word of God, the glorious truths that He presents to us. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 13. And I'm going to narrate who is actually speaking at various times because that's important to the text. The first part of verse 13, the daughters of Jerusalem, the young ladies who we've seen very familiarly in this story, they begin, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And now Solomon himself speaks, Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How noble are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, rather, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And now the bride speaks. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I want to continue reminding us of the context of this final section of Song of Solomon having had the thrill of initial romance, the joy of victory in marriage, the end of chapter 3, and having gone through the pain and the difficulty of apathy in marriage, we reach a section in which really the rest of the poem explores the deepening of the love between Solomon and the Shulamite, or, or Shulamith as we've been calling her. And we're going to see that in reality, this stage of their marriage, we, we sort of got into this a little bit last time, This stage of their marriage is richer, it's fuller, and yes, it's more passionate than ever before. We feel like this is a tremendous example for us. It reminds us of the hope that we have, particularly against those who believe the world's lie, that your marriage is somehow doomed and destined to settle into something less than where it began. And we make jokes about that all the time, don't we? The the initial passion of marriage, and then it kind of settles down over time. That is not the pattern of Song of Solomon. And so we began this final section last time with what we called the maturing of love. 
Tonight we're going to look at what we're calling Love Rekindled, and that's our theme tonight. And then next time we'll see the response to Love Rekindled, we'll see the strength of growing love, and we'll see the proper progression of love, and that'll bring us to the end of this poem. But this continues, this, this crescendo, this heightening in their love. They're, at the end of chapter 7, we're going to see that they'll be going out to the country together to have private time, and this really occupies the rest of the book, and we're moving towards that. But before we get into the text, I'd like to point out two general features just for us to understand this. The first feature, and you've probably noticed this already, it seems that every time we think we've gotten to the most sensual and descriptive parts of the song in terms of marital intimacy, the poem outdoes itself. And tonight's text is no exception. You, if it's a little bit embarrassing to you, you think that, well, we got through chapter four, who got that done, we'll kind of slide to the end here. It just gets worse. It's just... This is where, you notice there's very few children here. Nobody's bringing their kids anymore because it just keeps going toward the end. The very last verse of the the entire poem is maybe the most erotic verse in the whole poem. But it's very important theologically because it forces us to face the fact that God's design of marital intimacy minus the sinful shadow that the world has cast on sexuality It's open, it's sensual, it's intense because marital oneness and unity is meant by God to be supernatural. It's meant to be mysterious. And in fact, in trying to grasp the wonder and the majesty of the marital union, we begin to see just a little bit better perhaps the mystery of trying to grasp the union of the three persons of the triune God, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That is the relationship, the heavenly relationship, which serves as the model for human marriage. So this section, like the rest of the book, forces us to look in the mirror and analyze which parts of our view of marital union and sexuality has been formed by sin, has been formed by sinful convention, or even, yes, formed by legalistic responses to the sexual sin of the world. Why is it that in the church... This book is almost never preached. Why is that? And so this forces us to look at God's view and to leave aside the sin nature that we're um, so saddled with and to look at the pure view of marriage as reflective of the, the union among the Godhead. The second feature I'd like to point out, as we're going to see near the end of our text, one of the main contributing factors to the intensity and, and dare I say, the eroticism of the relationship between Solomon and his bride is the fact that they're sanctified in the sense of decreasing sin and pursuing their unity and obedience to the Lord. In other words, their godly behavior toward one another contributes to creating this atmosphere of intense lovemaking and closeness and joy together. That's going to be so important that how you treat one another is what actually creates this atmosphere. And so tonight we'll look at Love Rekindled, or we could give it an alternative title, Shulamith's Dance. This is a dance tonight. And I'm going to organize our thoughts as as applicationally as we can here. I want to just think in terms of lessons. And if you are going through this as a married couple, I would urge every married couple to discuss each one of these lessons together in the coming week. They're vital, they're important, and they reflect God's design for marriage. So tonight, I want to do eight of these lessons. 
Eight lessons concerning love rekindled. This part in their marriage where they've been through difficulties. They've been through hurt and pain. They've repented with one another. They have come to this place now where their love is heightened. So eight lessons concerning love rekindled. And they're not short. And so I'll read them to you a couple of times. Lesson one, openness and growth should characterize rekindled love. Openness and growth should characterize rekindled love. We draw this lesson just from some of the general observations of the whole text, which I read a moment ago. Of all of Solomon's descriptions of Shulamith, this is by far the most explicit and the most sexual. Even as I read it, you were saying to yourself, well, he's outdone himself now. We haven't even been this far yet in Song of Solomon. And this is true. And they've been married for an unspecified amount of time, but it's reasonable to assume that some years have passed by now. What does this mean? It means that the sexual union and the comfort level together has grown, not into a comfortable, boring routine, but with a clear heightening of passion together. Their their love is greater, it's higher, it's more intense. And as we'll see in a while, this is at least in part the result of working through difficult issues together, the result of greater obedience to the Lord together. They're enjoying the fruit of that. I wonder how many excuses we make for not pursuing a passionate life of oneness with our spouses. And and we all know that life has a thousand challenges, a thousand distractions. They're everywhere. But in the midst of those, to the very best of our ability and with the within the boundaries of any uncontrollable challenges that we have, such as health or other difficulties, we're to pursue our spouses in tremendous love and and tremendous oneness. Don't coast to the finish line. Don't just make it. And as we read this text, I'm sure you know this, there's no hint or flavor of withdrawal. There's no hint of boredom. There's no hint of hindrance or reticence of any kind. Our marriages are to be characterized by total openness, total vulnerability, having a sense of wonder that you're sharing souls, you're sharing life with another human being. It's mysterious and it's majestic. Just as an example, and we've mentioned this before, but it's worth highlighting, you might expect the wisdom of the Bible when talking about a seasoned married couple a couple who has been married for many years, you might expect the wisdom of the Bible to speak in terms of settling down into a comfort zone of some sort, of making sure to serve one another by getting each other's slippers and making sure that the the bills are paid and the exterminator comes to the house regularly and, and all those good things. Those are practical and those are tender ways to love one another. And that's what we might expect the Bible to talk about, settling in. But the Bible's wisdom concerning a seasoned marriage couple is seasoned married couple rather is very surprising to us. I pointed this out before and in the next message next time I'm going to do a full exposition of this text. But Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 written by Solomon himself about a couple who's been married for years and years and years says, quote, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. How many times has a couple married for 40 years ever said, we're drunk with love with each other? But that's the Bible's pattern. That's what the Bible points us to. So lesson one, openness and growth 
should characterize rekindled love. Lesson two. A wife's sexual attractiveness is meant for her husband. A wife's sexual attractiveness is meant for her husband. Verse 13, the end of chapter 6. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. The daughters of Jerusalem are speaking here. They've been a frequent character throughout the poem. You remember from verse 11 that Solomon and Shulamith have gone out into the countryside, perhaps for a walk. Later in chapter 7, Shulamith will invite Solomon to a more extended time away, a, a weekend away, so to speak. And the daughters of Jerusalem have apparently followed them. And they want to continue looking at Shulamith's beauty, admiring her. So they're attempting to pull her away, or at least to distract her. To, to say, you look so wonderful, let's look at you. Uh, what I want you to notice is that these young women are focusing on beauty for beauty's sake, for vanity's sake. But Shulamith has a use for her beauty, and that is to please her husband. That's her sole use in all of Song of Solomon, of her charm and her appeal and her attractiveness. Now, it's very clear from this whole text, from Proverbs 31, from other texts as well, that the Bible cherishes the God-given attractiveness of a woman, but the pursuit of beauty purely for self-gratification doesn't really have a place in the marriage. As a matter of fact, Solomon is not happy that there's a crowd around him and around Shulamith. They're out in the country somewhere and there's no getting around this. We, we can't work our way around this at all. Shulamith is dancing for Solomon. And around the corner comes a bunch of teenage girls. Boy, that'll kill a mood right there. And Solomon is not thrilled with the competition for her attention. Second half of verse 13, this is Solomon speaking. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? He's characterizing her dance as a dance before two armies, or in Hebrew, two companies of people, two groups of people. Now, the text doesn't spell out exactly what he means, but the best guess is somewhat humorous. This is a dance for me. It's not meant to be in front of two armies, in front of a huge crowd. In other words, to the young ladies, he's saying, get lost, leave. But this does bring us again to a rebuke of anyone who would see her purely for her beauty. His coming erotic description of her is based on the, the intensity of his love for her. His previous contemplations of her have included his admiration of her, and this leads to a growing and a heightened sensuality in their marriage because of oneness and closeness. And I think this is as good a place as any to remind all of us that modesty is for a reason. Modesty is for a reason a woman's body is to be viewed by her husband only. And our culture and our sin natures have turned this concept absolutely upside down. Our culture wants to exploit beauty for its own sake and to reveal as much of a woman's body as possible, not in the context of marriage. And I don't know where we think, why we think this is okay. It's not okay. When a woman chooses to go along with the culture and reveal herself in ways that are, are sexual in nature, it's just stealing. It's stealing from a future husband. It's stealing from other men. It's stealing from other women. And then ironically, when marriage does happen now, sin and inhibition and manipulation and power struggles tries to kill this amazing openness. And so you have, we are living in a culture 
that values sexualized singleness and doesn't value sexualized marriage. Instead, before marriage, be modest and leave everything, not nothing, to the imagination. And after marriage, a wife's most intimate and sexual attractiveness is a gift to her husband and her husband alone. So lesson two, a wife's sexual attractiveness is meant for her husband. We can find a third lesson here. The intentional, unembarrassed giving of pleasure is God's design. The intentional, unembarrassed giving of pleasure is God's design. As we get to chapter 7, at this point it becomes quite ludicrous to try to maintain any sort of allegorical or metaphorical view of Song of Solomon. You really can't do it. Uh, saying that this is really about Christ and the church. That's what this is about. Now you just have to stretch to ridiculous lengths to create metaphorical meanings. How do you allegorize Shulamith's belly button or her rounded thighs? And I've seen this happen. The belly button is as if the gospel is full of truth. Where do you come off getting this? It becomes ridiculous. And again, we can't get around this. Shulamith is dancing for Solomon. And we are so uncomfortable just even talking about this. You're, you're talking about this in church. I'm talking about it from the Word of God. Now, just to be very clear, we don't turn that into a false law of some sort that this is the standard of loving sexuality in marriage. If, if, you, if you are not rhythmic, this is not something that you have to worry about. But we do draw some important principles from the dance that Shulamith does. This is clearly an intentional and unembarrassed giving of visual pleasure to her husband. She's appealing to the visual closeness with which God made men. This is how they're made. She's purely serving her husband in this regard. She's giving him, as it were, a feast for his eyes with a physical and a nonverbal invitation. This is the way most men relate to their wives naturally. Now, I would ask if this idea causes discomfort, really and prayerfully ask why, because this is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual problem, a spiritual misunderstanding of the will of God. As a preaching pastor, I would absolutely say that, yes, our top and highest and most glorious priority is to preach Christ, to preach the gospel, to think of heavenly things and salvation to think of all the glories of God. But to separate the gospel, to separate Christ from how he wants us to behave as his followers is not biblical. It all goes together as one package. As followers of Christ, we live in the way he created us to, to follow his will up to and including the intentional, unembarrassed giving of pleasure in marriage. And we absolutely know that we live in a world that has attempted and successfully done so to steal human sexuality and to pervert it beyond recognition, to make it disgusting and gross and horrifying. But there's nothing, absolutely nothing wicked or evil about sexuality in the context of marriage. It's God's invention. And so I would urge, if anybody is, is dis, is, has discomfort with this, to pray about this and to come at this spiritually. God is revealing His will here. We don't have the right to stand in judgment over the, will of, over the Word of God. The Word of God changes our view. And there's no getting around this. What we're seeing here is a sense of abandon. A, a wife 
intentionally appealing to her husband's visual acuity to issue an unforgettable and a delightful invitation. Solomon probably wrote this book as an old man and he remembers the details of this one specific incident that may have been 30, 40 years earlier. And what's the result of this intentional, unembarrassed giving of pleasure? The result is a unity and a closeness and a delight. I urge myself, I urge all of you, don't just settle for getting through your marriage. Don't crawl through your marriage. Draw near to each other, and God has given a mechanism by which we do this. And I understand, and it's sad that we live in a world that is sinful. We understand that life, that circumstances, even health issues, may not always permit the full enjoyment that a couple once enjoyed, maybe earlier in their marriage. But don't give up. Do all you can. Approach each other. Don't give up. This is God's design for spiritual, for emotional union, for love that aches powerfully, love that satisfies the soul. I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to say that 80% of all the counseling I've ever done in the context of the church has been marriage counseling. The couples don't experience this powerful ache of love, the satisfaction of the soul because of the walls of sin and inhibition and even embarrassment to create barriers to the oneness that God designed. Now, by the way, this is not one-sided at all. Shulamith is giving Solomon visual pleasure and drawing him unabashedly to herself, and he will return this gift by thrilling her with his touch and kisses and passion, as we saw in verses 7, 8, and 9. So, lesson three, the intentional, unembarrassed giving of pleasure is God's design. Lesson four, rekindled love treats the other like royalty. Rekindled love treats the other like royalty. Chapter seven, verse one, the first half. How beautiful are are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Now, this is an unusual description here. In all of his previous descriptions, Solomon begins from the head and moves his way down. He's starting with her feet and moving his way up. And interestingly, the word feet here is not the usual term for foot. It actually describes a step or a dance. And so he's watching her dancing feet, attractive in sandals, which shows her feet to him, not covered by a long robe or a dress that might usually be the covering covering the feet of a woman going about day-to-day routines. And he calls her Bath Nadib, translated in the English Standard Version as Oh Noble Daughter, literally the daughter of a prince. You might recall that just a couple of verses earlier in chapter 6, verse 12, and we took some time to walk through this last time, she calls him by a nickname in Hebrew that we understand as My Beloved is a Prince. That's a long nickname. My Beloved is a Prince, but these are their nicknames for each other. He is My beloved is a prince, and she is daughter of a prince. I know that in day-to-day life, your husband may not seem very prince-like all the time, and your wife may not seem like a princess, but these names are important. They're based on determinations of how they're going to treat each other. What is this telling us? This tells us that marriage is meant, in essence, to be a royal household. 
a royal household where there is a kingly man in the house and a queenly woman in the house. I wonder what your marriage would be like if you treated one another like royalty, serving the other as you serve a king or as you serve a queen, a prince or a princess. As a believer in Christ, you possess the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, you possess the ability to treat one another, to treat another person like royalty, like you would treat the Lord Himself. In fact, this text made me think of Romans 12.10, which tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that should be most characterized in your marriage. And by the way, this is the pathway to the greatest joy in marriage, the, the minute you turn from what can the other do for me to what can I do for the other, that's where your joy begins. That's where the joy is, the satisfaction in being a servant. And we're created to serve. That's how we're made. And so that's where we find our greatest joy. And so rekindled love treats the other like royalty. And if I could put it this way, what other person on earth are you going to treat better? If there was ever a royal person, it's your spouse. Isn't that wonderful? doesn't matter whether you live in a 10,000 square foot mansion or a 700 square foot apartment. You're still a little royal household. It's a great way to think of your marriage. Lesson four, rekindled love treats the other like royalty. Lesson five, a wife overwhelming her husband with pursuit contributes to rekindled love. That's long. I'll repeat it a couple of times. A wife overwhelming her husband with pursuit contributes to rekindled love. A wife overwhelming her husband with pursuit contributes to rekindled love. What we have here is not a picture of a shy or reticent or inhibited wife. She's made a conscious, premeditated, planned, thought-out decision to pursue Solomon sexually. And she does so more visually and less verbally. Verse 1, how noble are your feet and sandals, how beautiful rather are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Again, Solomon is looking at her feet and working his way upward for the first time in the whole song. Now this is when we have to cross some cultural barriers here. Uh, Women in our day might be a little bit offended if you talk about their rounded thighs. It's not an insult. This is more likely speaking of her hips, that they're like jewels this is speaking of just a a general ornament and so if i could help help just a little bit probably a better way of thinking rather than jewels is just about rings like a gold ring so what is he saying here it's very simple he's saying that your hips are rounded and he likes that he says that they're like the work of art from a, a master craftsman the work of a master hand and if you think about this It takes tools, it takes know-how, it takes sophistication for us as human beings to be able to draw certain shapes. Have you ever tried to draw a perfect circle freehand? You can't do it. It's impossible. You need tools, you need help. What he's saying is is that, that these parts of her body have been crafted like a work of art. Verse 2, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. These are very unique references in the song. They don't have a comparison anywhere. And in the reading, in the study that I've done, guesses abound as to what this verse means. 
whether this is speaking of her clothing, that's potential, or even her unclothed body. What we do know for certain is that his gaze has continued from her feet going upward. It's likely that she's at least partially clothed at this point because of the sandals in verse 1. So what does Solomon mean that her belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies? I have the answer. When you get to heaven, ask Solomon because there's nothing in this text that tells us what he actually means. This is deeply intimate, deeply personal. Every married couple that truly loves one another has these little secret things. You have secret words or phrases that only you know what they mean. Could be speaking of color, golden skin like wheat. Could be speaking of loose clothing, even like lilies. And it could even be speaking of her most intimate area in very veiled language that's indirect, that's private, that is classy and tasteful. But in any case, it's very clear that there's a growing sense of anticipation. In fact, he says her navel is like a bowl filled with wine. In other words, he's anticipating their time together. He's getting intoxicated by the sight of her. Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Now, this picture is familiar to us because it's basically the exact same wording as chapter 4, verse 5, the, the honeymoon description. Now, this doesn't mean that she was unclothed necessarily. By this point in their marriage, she's very familiar with her body. This seems to be actually a reference to familiarity, the joy of the memory of many, many other experiences together. And this is very, very important in the marriage that you've built these memories of times after times after times together. In verse 4, your neck is like an ivory tower, your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus. His gaze has gone from her feet up her entire body and now to her neck and face. Her neck is described as an ivory tower. This is likely speaking of color, uh, ivory or value. It, it could be that unlike chapter 1, where she's sunburned, now she has not been in the sun for some time, and so her skin is lighter. He says her eyes are like the pools of Heshbon. Heshbon was a city east of the Dead Sea, and it was famous for having some man-made reservoirs, because it was a, a very arid area, obviously. And so these reservoirs would catch water and they would keep them. And they were small reservoirs and they were close together. And when there's no wind and there's no activity at all, they become like mirrors. And so the idea here, what, what he's telling her is that she's looking right at him. He's looking into her eyes. This is very important. Eye contact is an indication of total vulnerability, total comfort, total focus. Eye contact is one of the most mysterious aspects of human interaction. We, we all understand it. It's, it's complex and it's personal. Isn't it great that when you're two years old, you can just walk up to a perfect stranger and just stare at them like that? Because they don't know how rude that is or how uncomfortable it is. And all of a sudden, it reaches an age where you say, that's really rude. Don't do that. Why is that? Because it's so intensely personal. She's looking right at him. Her gaze is piercing him. And he says that her nose is like a tower of Lebanon. This is like an important part of her home country. Remember, she's from Lebanon. This is a compliment to her. A tower in Scripture often refers to beauty, to majesty, to importance. Verse 5, your head crowns you like Carmel. Not like what you put on ice cream, but like Mount Carmel. 
Your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in your tresses. Now, you may have noticed that in his creativity, Solomon has developed a small geographical theme. Verse 4, Heshbon to the southeast. Verse 4, Lebanon to the northeast. And now Carmel, Mount Carmel to the northwest. What's he doing? He's illustrating the idea of looking at her circularly. That he is taking in all of her in his gaze. Your head crowns you like Carmel. Mount Carmel, that whole area was known for its forests. This is like her unbound hair. Almost like trees. And he says your flowing locks are like purple. Now very interestingly, the, the high dollar purple dye at that time came from one city in the entire ancient Near East. That was the city of Tyre, just north of Mount Carmel on the Mediterranean coast. And so either her dark black hair is catching the light to look purple-like, or she's actually dyed her hair purple. Who knows? But what he sees is this, this light catching her hair that looks purple. In any case, it's a picture of flowing hair and it says a king is held captive in the tresses. He's held captive by it. As, as her dance progresses, she may be even sweeping her hair, her long hair over him. And he's just, just numb with pleasure at this point. She's holding the king captive, as it were. This is a picture of Shulamith's total abandon and delight in Solomon and overwhelming him with a proactive pursuit. So lesson five, a wife overwhelming her husband with pursuit contributes to rekindled love. Lesson six, the development of godly character contributes to rekindled love. The development of godly character contributes to rekindled love. Now you've noticed and we've pointed this out before that he's verbally appreciating her, he's interacting, he's engaging. She's not just an object for his pleasure. She's his companion, his lover, his friend, and he's affirming her verbally, giving her the security that to him she is indeed the most beautiful woman ever. Now, it's not necessary to fall back on worldly standards and to make comparisons. A husband who's rekindling and developing his love for his wife appreciates and loves her for who she is, taking note of unique features and loving them because they are her. They're, they're her. Now, there's a vital comparison that we have to make here. A progression of sorts, and it centers around Solomon's associations with Shulamith's beauty. What does he associate her beauty with? Chapter 4, verse 7. You might peek at this with me just for a moment. Chapter 4, verse 7. Their honeymoon scene, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Here, her beauty is accompanied by his love for her. And we said that this is the literary center of the entire poem. And so here, beauty is first associated with love. Beauty is associated with love. Chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9, later in their marriage, she says, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Here, her beauty is associated with her specialness, her uniqueness to him. So beauty associated with love, beauty associated with specialness. But here in chapter 7, verse 6, her beauty is associated with character. 
how she acts towards him. Look at this, verse 6. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Her beauty is associated with character. This is very important. How beautiful and pleasant you are. Pleasant is not a sexual word at all. It's never used in that context. Pleasant is simply a word that means you're agreeable. It speaks of doing things that please others, doing things that please God. You might recall that in her second dream, or really a nightmare of sorts, in chapter 5, this is presented as a dream because it's a very nice and respectful way to present problems in their marriage without actually putting her down. You remember that Shulamith had a problem with a spontaneous, sharp, impatient tongue. That when Solomon came to her door to approach her for love without thinking, she spoke through the locked door, and and I'm paraphrasing, I'm already all clean, I'm ready for bed, I'm in my pajamas, I'm ready to go to sleep, go away. And this hurt him. And he left, even in the time it took for her to realize her sharpness and her hurtful words, and, and the damage was already done. But now, Solomon says that she's beautiful and pleasant. That his view of her beauty is based on the fact that she's pleasing to be around. And that implication carries the full weight of what it means for a wife to be pleasant with her husband. Not nagging, not using demeaning tones of voice, not ordering him around, not being impatient, not being disrespectful. What does this show us? It shows us that Shulamith has changed. She's matured. She's grown. And it contributes in Solomon's mind to her beauty. This verse has probably come to your mind as well. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain by the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is exactly the spiritual reason why a 25-year-old couple that cannot behave themselves that a a husband can see his wife as as ugly and horrible and the wife can see her husband as, as a horrible human being and she doesn't even want to look at him. I've had couples sit in my office right over there and say, I can't even look at you. It has nothing to do with looks. And on the converse side, why an 80-year-old couple can gaze into each other's eyes with delight and love and, yes, with desire. And, of course, this goes both ways. Absolutely, a husband who's seeking the Lord and developing in patience and kindness and tenderness is attractive to his wife no matter how goofy looking we get with age. Trying to look better, I guess, is okay. But how about trying to act better? And of course now she's danced for him. He's watched, he's expressed his delight in her and in her character, and now Solomon expresses his intentions. She's driven him to the point of insatiable desire. Verse 7 Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. These verses are pretty much self-explanatory. I don't need to go through the details here. She has successfully invigorated his desire for her. And the obvious implication of verses 7 and 8 is his intention is to touch her and to do so with abandon and with joy. Now, besides the references to his abandon and seeing Shulamith as a a lovely tall tree whose fruits he's going to enjoy, how do we know that his excitement has reached a fever pitch? 
Well, the translation mouth in verse 9 is really kind of understated. When he says that her mouth is like the best wine, this is more precisely in Hebrew speaking of her palate, the interior of her mouth. And there's no getting around this. He's speaking of deep and lasting kisses to be savored like the best wine at the royal table. I mentioned this wildness and this joy in his response in connection with Lesson 6, the development of godly character contributes to rekindled love because this abandon and this joy which both Solomon and Shulamith are expressing is not based on pure lust. It's not based on sexual technique, certainly. Not based on an obsession with physical pleasure. It's not based on any of those things. It's founded in and based in their treatment of each other as royalty. Their growth together in maturity and in godliness. They're working through a variety of difficulties over the years. One commentator called this the fruit of the pursuit. That there is this joy now that comes from godly character. The longer I've been a pastor, the more I think that most books written about marriage are essentially worthless. Because they skip to techniques. They skip to tricks to just do these three things and everything will be fine rather than talking about the character and the foundation of love. So lesson six, the development of godly character contributes to rekindled love. Lesson seven, sexual love is meant to cause continued marital strength. Sexual love is meant to cause continued marital strength. Right in the middle of verse nine, Shulamith finally speaks for the first time. Middle of verse 9, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. It here refers to the best wine, the, the metaphor of their love together. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. She continues this metaphor of their love being like wine. Now, the English Standard Version chose to see this last part at the wine of their love gliding over lips and teeth, which makes sense. They go together. But the final word in the Hebrew text is not teeth. The final word in the Hebrew text is those who are sleeping. This makes a difference in understanding the timing of what she's saying. That the wine of their love is smooth to Solomon, gliding over the lips of those who are sleeping. What does this mean? It means that in typical fashion, that all the way through has characterized Song of Solomon with class and with tastefulness, Their actual time of intimacy has already taken place. When did it happen? Look at the word wine in verse 9. There's a space between that and the word it. That's where it happened. Your mouth like the best wine. Then she makes her comment that their love is smooth like good wine to both of them. When? In the sleepy afterglow of their time together. That's what she's talking about. I want you to notice something here. There's a personal and a close and a special time that they're having afterwards. A time of unity and enjoying one another. And the implication here is even as they drift off to sleep. The build-up to their intimate time together gives way to the delight and the quietness of just being together. Of basking in the result of their love. It's an important time of bonding, of rejoicing. It's a tender time. It can even be a playful time. 
This is a time to draw near, not to suddenly distance yourself from the other. This is a time to celebrate closeness, not to suddenly look, on, look at your watch and get on with other things. Imagine this. You've been anticipating going to this steakhouse and, and you've waited for days to get there and you get to the steakhouse and you, you order the, the biggest and the best steak and they say, we're, we're going to start this from scratch. It's going to take us about 30 or 45 minutes and you say, I, it's worth the wait. You've got the napkin tucked into your shirt. You're, well, that's what guys do. You ladies don't do that. You've got, you're ready to go. Uh, I embarrass my family sometimes just for fun in restaurants by taking the knife and fork and banging on the table and they hate that. But you're waiting and you're waiting. You've been anticipating and your mouth is watering just a little bit and you're, and you're kind of ready for this thing. And you get there and, and it comes up and it's just beautiful. Just a little bit of smoke still coming off of it. And you're just ready for this thing. And the waiter sets it down in front of you. And then you pull out a blender, put it in there, and say thank you very much and you drink it on the way out. You would never do that. Let me tell you the words that come to mind in this moment of afterglow between Solomon and Shulamith. Think of these words, words like savor, words like remember, words like delight, words like cherish. How about eye contact? How about hand holding? How about cuddling? Savor, remember, delight, cherish, eye contact, hand-holding, cuddling. This is the time that the glue of your marriage dries and makes you one. You're bonded together. It's important. It is the glue that God has given to bind your hearts and your minds and emotions together. Lesson 7. Sexual love is meant to cause continued marital strength. We'll do one more. Lesson eight. A little bit more theological here. The intimate relationship helps minimize the curse of sin in marriage. I'll repeat this a couple of times. The intimate relationship helps minimize the curse of sin in marriage. The intimate relationship helps minimize the curse of sin in marriage. Shulamith gives her assessment of their marriage after their intense time together. Verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I want to take this apart because there's a couple of complex issues here. First of all, the context. To properly understand this, we have to remember the larger context of the story of Solomon and Shulamith, which is why Song of Solomon makes no sense outside that story. The larger context of their story, you remember all throughout the story, there's been this nagging and terrible situation of Solomon's political marriages and his concubines, 60 queens, 80 concubines by this time. And by the, by the end of his life, those are in the hundreds. And we've seen that in the last section, even the queens and the concubines agree that Shulamith is Solomon's one true love. But the other two times that Shulamith says something similar to this statement, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. The other two times, in each case, it's in the context of needing reassurance that she is his true and abiding love. That's the context. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 16. I want to show this to you visually. Chapter 2, verse 16. They're not yet married. Their love is growing. 
Chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. But what came just before it? Verse 15, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Remember, this was likely them trying to figure out how they're going to deal with the reality of his political marriages, the fact that that he's literally the most sought-after man on planet Earth at this time. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 3. The second use of this phrase. Chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And what's the context? She's just had her dream in which she fears she's lost him, perhaps to other women, due to her own apathy, to her own sin. And so this is certainly the context again in chapter 7, verse 10. But now she's certain that after this time of intense lovemaking together, she's certain that she belongs to him and his desire is for her. We have to be real here. We, we can't just form a little bubble of our own making. In this ancient Near Eastern context, it's not realistic to think that this means that all of her worries are over. God's intent from creation was one man with one woman. And sadly, Shulamith can never rely on this to be the case with Solomon. Not 100% of the time, at least. This is part of the reason in the next section that she's going to invite him to go away with her out to the country to spend time just with her. But here is where it gets really interesting. There's an, an interesting turn of events. Shulamith has not been able to And it would have been impossible, in fact, for her to try to control the situation, to insist and to demand that Solomon, literally the most sought-after man on earth, to somehow undo all of his political marriages, undo all the concubine relationships which were undoubtedly thrown at him in exchange for loyalty of noblemen or even neighboring leaders. It's not realistic that Shulamith demand that he change what was basically an unchangeable situation. What would have happened if Solomon got rid of all of his wives, got rid of all of his concubines? It would have caused a war in the whole region, the likes of which they'd never seen. Because kings would be attacking, noblemen would be withdrawing their, their loyalty. It, it would have been politically a total disaster, probably would have ended up in Solomon's own death. And yes, we could argue that he should have done the right thing anyway. In an ancient Near Eastern context, that didn't come to their mind. But there's a small language feature here which really tells a very helpful story about what Shulamith chose to do in light of this situation. This word translated, his desire is for me, is only used three times in all of the Old Testament. And you kind of have to hang with me here on our logic. It's only used three times in all the Old Testament. The other two are exclusively dark and negative. And so it bears paying attention to those two other occurrences and how they relate to this third occurrence. The first time this word for desire happens is in God's pronouncement of the curse of sin when he pronounces to Eve in Genesis 3.16 to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. A little bit more precisely in Hebrew, your desire shall be toward your husband. This is not speaking of sexual desire at all. It's speaking of a woman's natural sinful desire to dominate, to rebel. He said that will be who you are as a woman. 
That will be your struggle to not be in the subordinate position in marriage, to not be content with God's plan. All Christian women who are aware of their own sin know this tendency in themselves. It is a part of the curse. That's the first time it's used. The second time this Hebrew word for desire is used is just in the very next chapter. Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, is angry with his brother Abel because God has accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And the Lord warns Cain in Genesis 4 verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is toward you. Its desire is against you, so to speak. This is another wicked desire, the desire of the sin nature. Now, how does this relate to Shulamith's situation here? It is not coincidence that this is the word chosen by the Holy Spirit. Instead of acting on her sinful desire to dominate, to control, to make the circumstances different, instead, she has approached her husband. She has literally danced for him. She's accepted that she cannot change an unchangeable situation. And now, instead of her sinful desire taking over, because of her obedience, seeking after her husband, treating him as my beloved is a prince, wooing him and showering him with physical and emotional love, now his desire, not a sinful desire, but the real heart of his love, his desire is for her. There's been a change. In the New Testament, the the test of the bond of love in a Christian marriage is that the couple lovingly gives their bodies to one another. 1 Corinthians 7, they love each other with mutual ownership. Why is this so important? Wicked, sinful, controlling desire has been changed to love and changed to something beautiful. As close as is possible in a sinful world in which all of us are sinners, to a certain degree, Shulamith's choice to woo her husband instead of trying to dominate him has turned what was a negative desire to rebel and to rule now into a positive desire that he has toward her. I think the axiom is very clear here that a woman will never decrease sin in a marriage by trying to dominate her husband. You can never draw a husband close through domination. It's impossible. Even for good purposes. But instead, like Shulamith, a woman who woos and loves and serves and delights in her husband is at least partly undoing the curse which plagues every marriage to one degree or another. And I may as well throw this in as well. In that Genesis 3.16 verse, when God states the curse to Eve. He also says, he shall rule over you. That's not saying that's a good thing. That's not talking about a New Testament godly version of leadership in the home. That's talking about domination and abuse and horrible treatment. And so the other side of that is true as well. That a man who treats his wife like the daughter of a prince, they'll do better that way. And at some degree, decrease and even undo to some degree the sin nature that we're struggling with. You see why Peter calls marriage in 1 Peter 3, 7, the grace of life? It is the grace of life. It can be something that graces and adorns life in a sinful world. It literally can be the best part of your life is your marriage. It can be the sweetest and the most blessed part of following Christ in regards to our day-to-day life. 
before we finish up this evening, I want to add one more note that lifts us up even beyond the marriage relationship. We've been talking about rekindled love, and I think this clearly points us to an important principle. Our sin makes it necessary to rekindle our own love for the Lord, doesn't it? We rekindle our love through confession of sin and repentance. And I'd like to point out that Shulamith is a bride completely vulnerable to her husband. She has approached him. You all know this, but one of the hallmarks of habitual sin is a tendency to delay going to the Lord in repentance, isn't it? That God will be a little less mad three days from now if I just kind of put it off like like you can avoid him in the first place. Thinking that somehow you're giving God a cooling off period so that maybe when he nails you with discipline, it'll be a little less because he's been too busy dealing with a bunch of other sinners and he comes back to you and he's kind of cooled off a little bit. Sin prevents us from total intimacy with the Lord when we're not confessing sin. It it prevents total vulnerability and joy in his presence. But Shulamith's example tells us to do the opposite. That the faster we run to the Lord in repentance and in vulnerability, our relationship and fellowship with the Lord is renewed and it's strengthened. And so just like Shulamith drawing near to Solomon, I want to remind you in your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, James 4.8 has a very beautiful promise. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's to be reflected in our marriages and it is to be lived out in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And in our marriages, draw near to your spouse and He will draw near to you. Draw near to your spouse and she will draw near to you. The principle is the same. Why? Because God created the marriage relationship to be a mirror of the relationship between God and humanity and the relationship among the Godhead in the Trinity. So we live that out and we enjoy the benefits. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this text which is so beautiful, intense, tells us what a human marriage is meant to be. Lord, I pray for our marriages. I pray that we would love one another as a king and a queen in the home, that we would accurately reflect your love for us. Lord, I know that there are marriages even in our own church that perhaps are struggling. I pray, God, that you would bring healing and restoration. I pray that you would bring um, a wondrous delight in one another, humility, serving each other, confession of sin, remembering that each day that we have with the other is a gift. Help us to treat them as such. Lord, let us use our homes and our marriages as a way to honor and glorify you as a way to demonstrate our faith in day-to-day life. And as you fill the local group we call Grace Bible Church with marriages that are pleasing to you, might we then be strengthened together, together as a church that we might proclaim the gospel to a dying world and be strong in that endeavor. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.